0: welcome to the service today and happy mother's day to all of you ladies i trust that this will be a blessed day for each of you we certainly wish you could be here and be on campus with us and we could be celebrating together we had planned to baptize some of our children who had received christ on this day we were looking forward to a baby dedication on this day, but because of the circumstances, we're not able to do those things. And I know you certainly understand. And we look forward to the opportunity that's coming very shortly for us to begin gathering together again. Also know that on Mother's Day, it's bittersweet for some people. And we're asking the Lord to comfort those of you who feel that way on this day. But we pray that this day will be a glorious and a wonderful day uh, for all of you. Before I come to the message this morning, let me take just a moment let me remind you that on May the 31st, we're going to begin gathering again here in the auditorium and worshiping together. And we're looking forward to that day. May the 31st is the Sunday that we celebrate Pentecost. The church was born into existence on the day of Pentecost. And sort of a rebirth will take place on the 31st of May. And we encourage you to mark your calendar for that. Some of you may not feel comfortable yet to be a part of that service, and we certainly understand that. But let me tell you that we'll have an 8 o'clock service, a 9.30 service, and an 11 o'clock service. The 8 o'clock service is for those that are 65 years of age and older. And then the 9.30 and 11 service is for any age that wishes to come and attend. And there's an announcement about that on all of our various platforms, Facebook, on our website. Uh, If you look on the app, you'll find it as well. And you can hear that announcement. And then this week, uh, we're going to be sending you a letter about that very special day. And so I hope that you'll begin praying with us and praying for us as we move toward that reopening day and we begin gathering together again Uh, Here on our campus I want to invite you to take your Bible with me if you will and open to the book of 2nd Kings We're we're going to look at just two verses that will be on your screens But then we're going to look at this whole story that begins in verse 8 and goes all the way through verse 37 And there are too many verses to put on the screens for you today But I want us to begin by looking at these two verses verse 25 and 26 that come out of the context That we're going to be studying for the rest of the morning as we talk about a godly mother. Verse 25, and so she departed and went to the man of God at Mount Carmel. So it was when the man of God saw her afar off that he said to his servant Gehazi, look, the Shunammite woman, please run now to meet her and say to her, is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with the child? And she answered, it is well. Now those are three pretty good questions to ask as we begin today. Is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with the child or with your children? Mothers, is it well with you? How is your life today? Are you walking with God? Are you growing in your fellowship with him? Is your relationship ever deepening with him? Do you sense his presence more and more? Do you see the light of his guidance in your life? How is it with you today mothers and then that question is it well with your husband ladies? We won't ask you to answer that question for your husbands necessarily But one of the things you'll note as we go through this story in just a few moments is that this was a husband that for the most part was distant and distracted This was a husband when you look at him. He was a man's man, but he was somehow detached from what was going on in his own family You might think of this husband that we'll see here in a few moments as a man who could drop a buck from 200 yards away, who who could paint the corner of the home plate with a fastball, uh, who could throw a tight spiral with a football, but he didn't have a clue of what was going on spiritually. How is it today with your husband? Is he growing in the Lord? Men, can I ask you, are you growing in the Lord? Is your faith developing? Are you leading in your family? Are you showing your children the way to God? And then that question, how is it? Or is it well with your child? Is it well? with the child and of course that's an important question to ask today as well as you think about your children going through this pandemic and living through the difficulties and the struggles and the trials that we're having to deal with is it well with your child is your child growing in the faith is your child learning and developing in the things of god are they memorizing scripture are they praying certainly those are three important questions that could be asked on this very special day and i hope that you'll ask those questions but those three questions come out of a story about a woman who lived in the city of Shunem. She's called the Shunemite woman. And we don't have anything else about her as far as her name or her title. Uh, we don't know the name of her husband. We just know that she lived in the city of Shunem. Shunem was a town in the Jezreel Valley. Just sometime Google Jezreel Valley. It's an incredibly, unbelievably beautiful and fertile uh, territory of ground. And you can look from the mountain peaks around and you can look down across this enormous valley. And in one part of that valley was a little town called Shunem. And this woman lived in that town. Let me set up the stage for you here. At this particular moment, the king who is ruling in Israel is Jehoram, or sometimes called Joram. He was a wicked king, and maybe you'll best remember him because of who his mother and father were, Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab might not be a name you know so well, but Jezebel certainly is a name that you probably will remember. And while he didn't do everything that his mother and father did... He was nevertheless an idolater and he did things in idolatry in different ways than did his mother and father. And so it's interesting to note as you see this story unfolding that this woman is living in an ungodly time. She's living in a time when there is idolatry all around. She's living in a time that's very difficult to live out your faith. She's living with a husband who apparently is a good bit older than her. And that husband, as I've already mentioned, is somewhat detached. Uh, He doesn't seem to be interested in spiritual things. As you'll see here in a few moments, he doesn't even seem to be interested that much in the rearing of his own child that God's going to give to him. And so this woman is living in somewhat difficult circumstances. And yet, one of the things we do know about her is that she was a woman of some means. She had some financial and social means. Uh, apparently she had some wealth. Where that came from? Maybe it came from the hard work of her and her husband. Maybe it came from uh, something that was handed down to them from one family to another. But she was a woman of some means, of some social and financial standing within her community. But beyond that, we don't know much about her except this one very important fact. She was a woman who desperately wanted to have a child, but throughout the course of her marriage had been unable to have that child. Now, as we consider this story together today, it's broken into three scenes. It's like an unfolding play, broken into three scenes. And you'll see these scenes introduced in exactly the same way. You'll notice in verse 8 of 2 Kings chapter 4, it says, Now it happened one day, and thus the scene opens with this Shunammite woman and her husband. The second scene opens in verse 11. It says, and it happened one day. And scene two begins to come to life for us, and the characters are on the stage. And then when you get to verse 18, a third scene opens, and the child grew. Now it happened one day. Now your translation may word it a little bit differently, but in each of those spots, The scene opens for us. In the first two scenes, we're putting all of the characters into the scene. Everybody that's going to be a player in this drama is all coming on the scene in those first two opening scenes. But then when you get to the third scene, you see the difficulty that this mother faces. You see the tragedy that she has to endure. And you see the real drama, the the dramatic things that are unfolding before us in scene number three. So let's begin with scene one, and let's get introduced to this godly woman, this woman who would become a godly mother. It says in verse eight, now it happened one day that Elisha went to Shunam, where there was a notable woman, and she persuaded him to eat some food. So it was, as often as he passed by, he would turn in there to eat some food. And so we're introduced to this woman, the Shunanite woman, and we're introduced to the prophet Elisha. Elisha was the prophet who followed Elijah. He had been a servant to Elijah. And when Elijah was whirled away, God allowed the power and the presence to fall on Elisha. And Elisha became the great prophet of Israel. And here he's passing through this town. He apparently passes through this town on a number of occasions as he's making his way from one place to another, as he's carrying out the ministry that God has given to him. And this woman recognizes that this is a man of God, that he's on the mission of God. He's doing the work of God. And so she begins inviting him when he comes through town to stop at her house. She offers to him hospitality. And in offering hospitality to him, she provides a meal for him and he stops and he eats and he enjoys the meal. No doubt he enjoys the company of of she and her husband and they're having this fellowship with one another. But as time progresses, and this continues, she has this idea, I believe, led by God. She has this idea, and she goes to her husband, and she says to her husband, you know, this man of God continues to come through here. He continues to eat at our table. Why don't we do something? Why don't we go on the roof of our house, and why don't we build what we commonly call today a prophet's chamber? We can wall it in. We can put a door in it. We can put a bed, and we can put a lamp and a chair. Uh, we can put a table in that room. And when the prophet is coming through, not only can he eat at our table, but he can have a place to stay, and he can have a place to rest. Uh, understand, this was a day when you didn't have hotels and motels like we're used to today. So the hospitality of people was absolutely necessary if you were a traveler. And here was the man of God who came through this city on a number of occasions. And the result was this woman, recognizing the great work that he was doing and wanting to be a participant in that work, was not only willing to feed this man of God when he came through, but she was willing to ask her husband to spend some of their money to build a room For the man of God, so that when he was through the town, he could stop and he could rest in the town and he could be there in a place where he could find comfort and he could find rest in his journey. In other words, in this very first scene, we see this woman's faith, this godly mother's faith. We see it in her generosity. They ultimately build that room. They put those pieces of furniture in that room with that lamp in that room. And the prophet now is able, as he comes through Shunem, to have a place to rest. And her faith is worked out through her generosity. You know, you can tell a lot about your commitment, about your godliness, about the direction of your life, by how you use your resources but how you use the funds that God gives to you and provides to you. You can tell so much about where your heart is and where the direction of your heart is going because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And here's an example of this woman who's going to become a godly mother. Here's an example of this woman expressing her faith through her generosity and through her hospitality. Well, scene one comes to an end. In a period of time passes. In other words, the man of God comes through town on a number of occasions. He stops in. He's able to stay at the house. He enjoys the meal that she cooks for him. Uh, He's able to rest while he's there. But in scene two, something happens that you might not have expected to happen. You'll notice beginning in verse 11, and it happened one day that he came there, and he turned into the upper room and lay down there. Then he said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite woman. And when he had called her, she stood before him. And he said to him, say now to her, look, you who have have been concerned for us with all this care, what can I do for you? Do you want me to speak on your behalf to the king or to the the, uh, the commander of the army? And she answered, I dwell among my own people. In other words, out of this heart of gratefulness and obviously moved by God, the man of God says to her, what can I do for you? What can I do to say thank you for the place that you have provided for me to be able to stay and the food that you have fed me on so many occasions when I've been coming through? And he says to her, what can I do for you? Can I go to the king? remember, this is an evil king, so he has some kind of a means of connection and being able to have hearing with this king. He says, can I go to the king and can I ask the king some favor for you? Can I go to the captain, the commander of his army, and can I, can I ask some favor on your behalf? And she responds in this incredible way. She says, I dwell among my own people. That's a Hebrew idiom that basically means, no, you don't have to do any of those things. I'm content. I'm content living with my people. I'm content living in this city. I'm content living with what I have. I'm not looking for anyone else to give me any favors. And you see this woman's faith, not only in her generosity, you see this woman's faith in her contentment, her contentment. She wasn't always pressing for some favor to be offered to her. She was willing to live with the things that she had been given and be thankful for those things. It reminds me of what the Apostle Paul said to Timothy, that godliness with contentment is great gain. And here is the expression of a woman's faith, not only in her generosity, but her faith demonstrated in her contentment. And there's nothing wrong with having ambition. There's nothing wrong with wanting to do better and to climb the ladder of success. But there are those moments in life when you realize that you just need to stop and be thankful for what God has already given you. And you're not looking for favors when you do something for someone else. You're simply expressing your faith. When you do those things for other people and she wasn't looking for anything from the king She wasn't looking for anything from the prophet. She wasn't looking for anything from the commander of the army She was just a woman who was contented to live where she lived and to have the things that she had and her heart was filled with gratefulness well Elisha the prophet hears the response that she has and Elisha the prophet says you know God's going to do something for you and something that you've been wanting for so long. God's going to give to you a son. Listen to it as it unfolds. Verse 16. Then he said, About this time, next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, No, my Lord, man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. You say, what in the world is she saying? You can imagine. This woman has been disappointed year after year after year. She has wanted a child for years of her life. Her husband is now advanced in years. He's apparently a good bit older than she is and advanced in years. And whether they can't have children because of him or whether it's some other infertility issue, she's not been able to have children. And it's hard for us in our contemporary culture to understand that if you can't have children, you know, there's this seeming curse on you. But that's how Jewish women felt they couldn't have a child. It was just such such a thing that it brought shame to them. They wanted to be able to bear children. And yet over and over again, she had not been able to bear a child. And so when Elisha says to her, God's going to give you a child, She responds like you would imagine any woman who's had a broken heart over and over again. She says, don't lie to me. Don't be telling me something. Don't be yanking my chain here. Don't don't be promising something that isn't going to be fulfilled. I've been let down so many times before. I've been brokenhearted for so many years. Don't promise me something that isn't going to come true. But on this occasion, it was going to come true. And at the appointed time, in the very next verse, verse 17, it says that this son was born to this woman and to this man. Now she has in her arms that young baby, that little baby that she loved so dearly, that she had longed for for so long, that had come as a gift from God. She didn't ask the prophet to do any favors for her, the king to do any favors for her, she, she didn't ask the commander of the army to do any favors for her. She was content in what God had allowed her to have. And yet here she is being given something that she never could have expected. That God, through the man of God, communicated, you're going to have a son. And now she's holding that baby in her arms. And thus scene two comes to a close. And a number of years will pass between scene two and scene three. Because when the curtain comes up on scene three... We see this young boy, he must be five or six, maybe in the early years of what we would think of as elementary school. He's still very young, he's still very small, and he goes to work one day with his dad out into the field. And while he's out in the field, something happens in those early morning hours, those middle morning hours, his head begins to ache. He's hurting more than he's ever hurt before, and he begins to cry out, my head, my head! He probably was holding his head. There probably was a grimace on his face. There was pain. And what does the father do? The father just keeps right on working. I told you he was sort of detached. One writer said that in this story, the father is a hollow man. And he hears what his son is saying. And what does he do? He says to one of his servants, take the boy to his mother. And so the servant scoops up the boy in his arms and heads back home to the house and takes the boy in the house and places that boy on his mother's lap. Notice it, verses 19 and 20. And he said to his father, my head, my head. So he said to a servant, carry him to his mother. When he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees till noon and then he died. She did what every loving mother would do. She held him on her lap, embraced in her arms, cuddling her son. There wasn't an emergency room just down the road where you could take your son. There wasn't some emergent care that you could go to that was just around the corner and you could be seen by a doctor. There weren't the pain medications that were available as there are today, and this woman holds her son and she does everything she can to calm her son and to ease the discomfort of her son. We don't know exactly what happened to him. Some have surmised that he had a heat stroke. Others have thought maybe it was an aneurysm or maybe a brain tumor. It doesn't matter exactly what it was. It means that this boy was suffering and he was hurting. And he's taken to his mother and his mother does what every loving mother does. She cuddles her son and she holds her son and tries to comfort her son during a a difficult time, a very painful moment in his life. But then it says, then he died. You see, we saw this woman's faith in her generosity. We see this woman's faith in her contentment, but now we see this woman's faith in her trials. You who are watching this service, you that have lost a child, you know the depth of the pain that you feel. You can feel at this moment what this mother felt as she was holding her son and his life slipped away. You can feel the emotions that are welling up within her. You can feel the depth of the breaking of her heart. You know what she's going through better than anybody else. And you can identify with this woman at this moment in ways that some of the others of us cannot. I can only imagine the pain that she was feeling. But can I just tell you something about this woman? This woman had faith even in the midst of this incredible trial in her life. The very next verse, verses begin to unfold that, that plan for us. And unfold that faith for us. Notice verse 21. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God. Shut the door upon him and went out. Can you just stop there for a moment? She went and she laid him on that rooftop or in that rooftop prophets chamber on the bed where the man of God would normally rest can I just say to you ladies we, we have to make sure that we make the beds that one day our children will need to lay in can you imagine what would have happened to this godly woman hadn't seen the man of God and the work of God and wanted to be a part of it and be generous to it and hospitable to the man of God can you imagine If she hadn't done those things, there wouldn't be this moment where she could take her son and lay him in the bed where the prophet would normally sleep. It wouldn't have been there. Mothers, we're making beds for our children every single day. Parents, we're making beds for our children every single day. We better make sure those beds that we're making for them are beds that they can lay in and they can find comfort and they can find peace and they can find help and they can find hope. We better make sure those beds have eternal value to them. This woman made this bed long before this boy was ever born. And now she takes her son, who's died, in her arms, and she lays him on that bed. At some point, you're going to lay your children on that bed. It might not be because they're dead physically, but you're no longer going to be able to control their lives and direct their lives. They're going to be adults and on their own, and you better make sure the bed you've left for them is the bed that'll lead them to the way of God and to the things of God she pulls the door behind her you know why she does that because in this culture you buried the body before sundown It's always within a 24-hour period you would bury the body and you always buried the body before sundown but this woman has a plan her faith in the midst of her trials is beginning to be evidenced by the plan that she has she takes him up she lays him on this bed she closes the door behind her because she doesn't want anyone to know that her son is dead, lest they begin the process. I mean, this was the moment you call the funeral home. This is the moment you book the church auditorium. This is the moment that you start the bereavement meal planning. This is the moment when normally you would order the flowers. But she doesn't want any of those things to be done. This was a woman who's facing the trial of her life. And here she is exercising faith in the midst of her trial. And she takes him, puts him on the prophet's bed, closes the door behind him so that nobody will know that he's dead because she has a plan. And what is that plan? She's going to head off to find the prophet. And she's going to have a conversation with the prophet of God and with the God of the prophet. She sends to her husband. She says to her husband, send me an animal and send me a servant to go with me. He does so. He wants to know what's going on. He can't understand why she wants to go see the prophet right now. Again, you see this husband, he's sort of detached. He doesn't know what's going on. He's sort of distant when it comes to spiritual things, especially. He can't quite get it. He's more committed to his work than he is to the spiritual character of his own family. And this woman takes the animal and this servant, and they begin making their way toward the prophet. It's going to be 15 or more miles that she has to go 30 miles round trip. And she makes this journey to the prophet. As uh, she sees Gehazi, the servant of the prophet, he asks her those three questions. Verse 26, please run now to meet her and say to her, That is, Elisha was telling the the servant of the prophet, please run now to meet her and say to her, it is well with you. Is it well with you? Is Is it well with your husband? Is it well with your child? And what does she say? In the midst of her trials, you see her faith. She says, it is well. It's the little Hebrew word, shalom. It is well. Now, in the back of your mind, is it well with her child? I mean, he just died a few hours before in her arms. He just, she just laid him on the prophet's bed in the prophet's chamber and pulled the door behind her so that they wouldn't begin the proceedings of the mourning and in the, in the, in the burial process. Is it well? In her own mind, she's believing God and she's trusting God in the midst of these circumstances and besides. When she's asked these questions and she says, it's well, in essence, what she's saying is, I don't have time. I don't have time to stop and answer all these questions for you. There's other things that I've got to do that are more important. And if I have to stop and answer all these questions, they'll take me too much time. It'll take away precious time. And I need to get to the prophet of God. You'll notice verse 27. Then when she came to the man of God at the hill, she caught him by the feet. But Gehazi came near to push her away. But the man of God said, let her alone, for her soul is in deep distress. Listen, you want to know how she felt? He just described it for you. It's deep distress. And the Lord has hidden it from me, the prophet says, and has not told me. So she said, did I ask a son of my Lord? Did I not say, do not deceive me? In other words, she goes back to that very first occasion... When she has this interaction with the prophet and the prophet says, God's going to give you a son. And she can't believe it at first. At, At that moment, she didn't want any more disappointment in her life. But now she's had that son. Several years she's had that son. And she's watched that son die. And she comes to the prophet. And you know what she wants more than anything else? She wants the will of God for her child. She wants the will of God for her son She says, Did God give me this son just to take him back from me? I don't understand that. How can this be the will of God? And she begins interceding on behalf of her son. We see this woman's faith in her generosity. We see her faith in her contentment. We see her faith in her trials that she had a plan to get to the man of God. We see her faith in her intercession. She comes to the prophet to intercede on behalf of her son. I want the will of God for my son. Surely God didn't give me this son to take him away from me. Surely God had a greater plan than that. And here she finds herself at the feet of the prophet interceding on her son's behalf. Well, the story continues to unfold. The prophet will send Gehazi with his with his rod, supposedly representing the power of God, and he'll lay that rod on that young boy and nothing happens. But that woman's not contented with just Gehazi going to where her son is laying. She will not leave that prophet. He has to go with her. She's going to insist. She she is interceding. She's insisting that he go. Notice verse 30. And the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as my soul lives, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Wow. Here's a woman who took hold of the man of God and took hold of God himself and says, I will not until you go with me leave you. You must go with me. And we see this woman's faith in her intercession. Ladies, keep interceding for your children. Keep begging God and pleading with God. Keep seeking the face of God. Keep going before God. Don't let go of God. Keep going before him on behalf of your children over and over and over again. And this godly mother... Her faith and her generosity, seen in her generosity, her faith seen in her contentment, her faith seen in the midst of her trials to believe God such that she would say it's well. Her faith in the midst of her intercession, she just kept begging and pleading with God and the man of God, you've got to help me. And so the man of God gets up and he leaves. It takes him a little longer to get there than it had taken Gehazi to get there. He goes up into the prophet's chamber. He pulls the door behind him. It says that he stretched himself out over the sun, over this boy. And he's praying on behalf of this boy. The body begins to warm, but life doesn't come back. He gets up and he paces in that room. What is he doing? He's praying to God. He's asking God to bring this boy back to life, to to give the life back to this boy's body. He's praying and then he goes back and he stretches himself out again over this boy. And then notice verse 35 he returned and walked back and forth in the house and again went up and stretched himself out on him. Then the child sneezed seven times the number of per- perfection, the number that demonstrates that life has come back. He sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. You ever wonder what that child must have been thinking? This man is stretched out over me. Who is this? No doubt she had seen this, he had seen this prophet of God before. But certainly these circumstances were unique and different than any that had ever happened to him before. And yet the life comes back into this boy. But we see this woman's faith another time. Now her son is alive again. She goes and she gets, uh, the prophet goes and gets this woman and says, come and take your boy into your arms. And now we see this woman's faith in her worship. Notice verse 37. So she went in. Notice the first thing she does? She doesn't grab her boy in her arms. So she went in and she fell at his feet and bowed to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. We see this woman's faith in her worship. She bows before the prophet and in essence before God himself. And she says, thank you. I give you the glory and I give you the praise and I give you the honor. And she worships the one who has brought her son back to life. Now, I don't know if you see this in this story, but as you read through this story, and I hope this afternoon you'll read through all of the verses from verse 8 to 37. You'll read through all of those verses, and you'll read the story of this woman reminding yourself of some of the things we've talked about today and putting yourself in her shoes, feeling some of the things she feels. I mean, she's married, but she's more like a single parent when it comes to raising her son in the ways of God. And yet this woman was a woman of faith, a woman who trusted and believed God, a woman who when the worst possible thing could happen to her, continued to believe God and continued to trust God and a woman who turned her heart to God and she lived out this worship before God, before everybody else. They could all see her bowing and worshiping God. She was a godly mother. She was a mother who understood that her Faith couldn't be something that she put on on Sundays or on some other day of the week, that her faith had to be integrated into every aspect of her life. Her faith impacted every other aspect of her life. And her faith constantly, in the midst of a wicked generation, in the, with, in the midst of a, an idolatrous, Baal-worshiping generation, this woman was a woman who kept her focus on God This woman was a woman who loved God with all of her heart. This woman was a woman who wanted to help the work of God and the ways of God. This was a woman who loved her son and wanted to teach him the ways of God. This was a woman who believed God and trusted God. This was a woman who called on God. This was a woman who worshiped God. This was a woman of faith. And she integrated faith into every other aspect of her life. You know, sometimes we're guilty of compartmentalizing our lives. Well, on Sunday, we put on our faith, and then on Monday, we put on something else. But the reality is that our faith should impact every other aspect of our lives. Our faith should be something that is so deep that it's living within us every moment of every day of our lives. Our faith should be real every moment. It should be guiding every decision we make It should be governing everything that we do. Our faith that says, I believe God, and I believe the word of God, and I believe the will of God, and I'm going to trust the God of heaven. I'm going to be generous with God. I'm going to follow him with all of my heart. And the result is that our lives become integrated with faith everywhere we go. There's a New Testament example of what I'm talking about. It's found in 2 Timothy chapter 1. It talks about young Timothy who was a pastor in the city of Ephesus who had been mentored by the Apostle Paul, a man that had traveled with Paul on occasion, had been an emissary of Paul on occasion. And the Apostle Paul says in his very last letter that he will write, he says to this young preacher boy named Timothy, he says, the genuine faith that's in you was first in your mother and in your grandmother. And he uses a little Greek word, he says, it dwelled first in Eunice and in Lois, and I believe dwells in you. Paul's the only one who uses that word dwell, that particular Greek word for dwell. He uses it to speak of the Holy Spirit indwelling the believer. He uses it to speak of God dwelling amongst his people. He uses it to speak of the Word of God dwelling lavishly in the lives of believers. Such that what he was saying in those moments was what this woman lived out before us. He was saying that Eunice and Lois had a genuine faith. It wasn't just something they put on on Sundays, but it was something that characterized every moment of every day of their lives. It was the reality of their lives all the time. And every part of their lives was governed by the faith. It dwelled in them richly. It dwelled in them lavishly. And it controlled what they did and where they went and how they lived and how they thought. Everything about their lives was governed by that faith. And Paul comes and says to Timothy, that kind of faith that dwelled in your mother and your grandmother, I believe dwells in you. And your faith is genuine, and your faith is real. You see, that's how we impact our children. That's how we help guide them where they need to go. That's how we show them the way of God. We don't put the faith on on Sundays and then take it off on the other days of the week. It becomes an integrated part of every aspect of our lives, and everything is controlled by our faith. Everything runs through what the Word of God has to say to us. And we stop and we consider what the the Bible tells us to do in every given situation and we seek to obey God with every aspect of our lives. This woman did it, whether it was in generosity or whether it was in contentment or whether it was in intercession or whether it was in worship or whether it was in her trials. She just kept believing God. And that's how Eunice and Lois raised Timothy. They just kept believing God and trusting and living for God. As a matter of fact, Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter of the New Testament, where you have the list of all of those names of all of those people who lived by faith, by faith this and by faith that and by faith this and by faith that. It says, by faith, women receive their children from the dead. This is one of the situations that he's talking about. There was another one in the life of Elijah where a child was raised from the dead, but they had that experience because they believed God. They believed God. Even in the midst of some of the most tragic circumstances of their lives. Mother, our ch- mothers, our challenge today is for us to have a faith that is integrated into every part of our lives so that our children see the reality and how it's applied to our lives in every circumstance of life, whether it's in our checkbook, whether it's in the trials that we face, whether it's when we're on our knees praying, whether it's when we're going through the most difficult moments of life, that they see that what governs us is our faith, and we guide them, we shepherd our children along this pathway. I was thinking about my mother this week. My mother will have been in heaven a year on May the 31st. The only thing I regret about my mother's passing is that I didn't get to be there before she passed to be able to tell her that I loved her and to be able to say goodbye to her for a time. I had a funeral that morning and I wanted to minister to that family and I left as soon as the funeral was over But I didn't make it in time, and she was gone before I got there. But I can tell you, growing up as a boy, my mother's faith was real. It wasn't something that she just put on on Sundays when she went to church. It was something that she lived out in her life every single day of her life. I can see her with the Bible open on her lap where she's reading I can hear her voice as she prays, and she calls on God on behalf of my two sisters and me, and on behalf of my father. I can see her as she goes to Sunday school, and she helps and works amongst the people and loves them and cares for them. I can see her sitting in the church pew. She never put me in the nursery. She probably should have. She never put me in the nursery or the children's church program. I was always in the service, and she never let me, she never let me uh, misbehave in church. And I sat there with my mother, and I watched her faith. I watched her faith. When my life would start to go one direction or another direction that would sort of get away from the things of God, I can still feel my, my mother's words saying to me, David, David, this is what God says. Now we got to do this. This is what we're supposed to do. Here's what we're taught to do. And she would guide us back onto the path where we should be had it not been for my mother. I would not have been there on that Wednesday night, December the 26th, when I received Christ as my Savior. By the way, I had a godly father. My father loved me, and my father was not a hollow man. He was not a detached man when it came to things that were spiritual. My father was very much involved in the spiritual upbringing of his children. But when I think of this day, I think of the faith of my mother. It was integrated into every part of her life. And it controlled everything she thought and everything she did. And she taught us the word of the living God. I've watched that in my own wife with our own children. As the faith was real to her all the way to the core of her being, it dwelled in her lavishly and richly. And she guided our children. Listen, our children are a credit to her, not to me. She guided our children in the ways of God and in the things of God. And she protected them when she needed to protect them. And she released them when she needed to release them. But her faith wasn't something she put on on Sundays and took off the rest of the week. Her faith was something that she lived out every single day of the week. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you this. Some of the greatest preachers there are are mothers. They'll never stand in a pulpit like this. But some of the greatest preachers there are are mothers. There's a story about G. Campbell Morgan. It might not be a name that you're familiar with. He's a preacher from another generation, wrote numerous books, pastored one of the largest churches in London at one time. He had three sons, and all three of those sons became preachers as well. And one day, one of those sons was asked the question Which Morgan is the greatest preacher? And the son quickly answered, mother, (laughs) mother. Mother was the greatest preacher. Mother was the one who lived out her faith before us. Mother was the one who took us on her knees and loved us and taught us the ways of God. Mother is that person. Moms, don't turn that responsibility over to anybody else. Take that responsibility to yourself and live out your faith before your kids and let it govern your life and teach your children how to let it govern their lives and be like this woman, this Shunammite woman. Every aspect of her life was affected by her faith. Every aspect of her life was affected by her faith. I would put it this way. Mothers are to shepherd us to shepherd their children through the maze of life with the light of Scripture." Mothers are to shepherd their children through the maze of life with the light of Scripture. You'll have to agree that life sometimes feels like a maze in the dark. But mothers shepherd their children through the maze of life with the light of Scripture. Don't let the TV shepherd them. Don't let the radio shepherd them, Don't let their friends and their friends' parents shepherd them. Moms, nobody can shepherd your children like you can shepherd your children. And they need to see a mom who loves God, who's committed. You may have a father that's a hollow man, a husband that's a hollow man. He may not be participating as he ought to be participating in the spiritual life of his family. But moms, you have a power You have a power in the faith that you live out. And I pray that you'll use that power to change the lives of your children.